Our reading this week is from the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. On the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is near evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began opening and began to give it to them then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us they got up and returned at once to jerusalem there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you to Pastor Hugh for his invitation and your warm welcome. I'm going to invite you to stand for a moment, just to stretch your legs and fill your lungs and get some oxygen to the brain or whatever. Uh, Preaching's mostly a matter of hearing rather than speaking, so it's good to fill the lungs, that kind of thing. And perhaps say to the person next to you, 
Uh, one thing that's happened this week that is completely ordinary, really boring, unexceptional, just a normal kind of thing that's happened this week. Wow, you really think I'm weird, don't you? I think he's gone crazy since he's gone to St. Andrews. That shouldn't be hard. Something that's average this week. You just got up, brushed your teeth, had lunch. Okay, you're looking really like... Uh, do, do please sit down now. You may or may not understand later why I asked you to share something completely normal, but we'll see. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. Uh, we pray it will illuminate our lives and our ways. And as we hear your word written, so may we be aware of the presence of your living word, Jesus, now here in our midst. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the most remarkable thing about Luke's description of what it's like to meet Jesus on the Emmaus Road is how unremarkable it all is. In fact, the whole way that Luke tells the resurrection stories compared to Mark and John and Matthew is, is how low-key it is. You know, they, they say, oh, 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 yeah, the women were there, but they didn't see him. There's a hint of angels, but that's about it. It's pretty ordinary stuff. Maybe even boring to some people. You know, what happens on the Emmaus Road? Uh, I mean, if you or I had been standing there, uh, perhaps making our own journey, the seven or so miles between Jerusalem and the village of Emmaus, that first Easter morning, what would we have seen? Well, two people walking along. One of them we recognize as Cleopas, but the other man or woman, we're just not even sure who they are. Uh, they're having a conversation, a discussion, almost an argument. Then a third person comes along and joins them. It, it's a bit hard to make out who they are, but there's something vaguely familiar about them. And he joins in the conversation, and after a bit of a chat, the first two fall silent. It almost looks like this third guy is doing some kind of Bible study with them. They certainly seem fascinated by what he's saying, although at times they, they look embarrassed as he asked them some questions. Then they arrive at their home, and now there really is a bit of an argument. You know, he wants to go on, but they insist that, that he comes. Oh, no, no, you've got to come in. They almost kind of drag him in by the sleeve of his robe. And that's it. That's all we see. Ordinary, unremarkable. A walk, a talk, a Bible study, a visit to a home. And the first thing that Luke wants us to see is how Jesus comes alongside us in the ordinary business of life. If all the resurrection appearances of Jesus were glorious, startling, amazing, I would struggle to relate to them. If his resurrection was a Hollywood blockbuster being directed by J.J. Abrahams or Steven Spielberg or something, it'd be high drama. You would get a blindingly lit Jesus filling the screen, dazzling us. And we're almost deafened by full surround sound. I'm back as I said I would be. No. Instead, we have Jesus in the ordinary. Perhaps it's the kind of thing we can relate to better. Someone who comes alongside us on the road. 
Perhaps someone who comes along as in the darkest moments. I mean, that terrible phrase in verse 21. We had hoped he was the one. We had hoped. Verse 21 gives us that sense of desperate disappointment. All they thought that God was doing, it's gone. They are disappointed. Verse 17 talks about their faces were cast down. It's a, it's a posture of discouragement. Jesus comes along, meets these disappointed and discouraged disciples, and nothing happens. They have a bit of a chat and a Bible study. It's not exactly Hollywood blockbuster material so far, is it? Jesus, in his infinite mercy and infinite paces, comes alongside, usually at our point of weakness. Okay, do something, Jesus. No, not yet. He's not being cruel. You know, as I watch the Emmaus story unfold, I want to say to Jesus, come on, tell him it was you, it's you. Explain to them what's going on. Put them out of their misery. I mean, that conversation where they said to him, oh, yeah, you don't know what's going on, do you? Well, stuff's happened. Oh, what kind of stuff? So they then start telling Jesus about Jesus. No, not straight away we're not going to go to the ending. Anyone who has been a Christian any length of time knows that God's pace And God's lessons are always slower, deeper, and better than we want. Slower, deeper, and better. I hope you've learned this lesson. If not, you're going to live with a lot of disappointment in your life, like those first disciples. We had hoped, but... So what did you hope that brings you this crushing disappointment? Well, it's about Jesus of Nazareth, they say in verses 19 to 21. He was a prophet. Yeah, let me just tell you. He's telling Jesus this. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. He was crucified, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That word redeem, uh, we hear it in a religious context, a church context. It's a word that means to release from slavery or to set free, to buy, to purchase. You redeem your vouchers at the supermarket. I hate the way the the supermarkets keep changing the little stickers you get just before I've got enough to get anything. That's another story. Cleopas and his friend wanted a Messiah to be a general, a leader of an army that would set them free from Rome. They had a, a political hope for power, influence, success. But they got a crucified Messiah. They could not see, would not see, that a crucified Messiah redeems Israel in ways they had not yet imagined. Not from the power of Rome and the army, but from the power of self, of sin, 
and of Satan. God wants to bring freedom at a far deeper level than these disciples imagined so far. Their hopes of what God should be doing blinded them to what God is actually doing to redeem his people. They had not yet learned that God's purposes are always slower, deeper, and better than what we want, even when we don't like them. I always think of the marvelous story in it's Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, where we hear about what God was teaching his people in 40 years of wilderness wanderings. What did he teach them? Well, he had one lesson. He wanted to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Forty years of testing and proving to teach one lesson. In the UK, he would fail Ofsted as a teacher. That's a British joke, sorry. Forty years for one lesson, that man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes out of the mouth of God. God's purposes are slower and deeper and better than we want, even if we don't like them. So please don't fall into that trap like these disciples that first Easter day, where you're so, we're so focused on our agenda, we miss what God is doing right in front of us. And I know Pastor Hugh last week, I, I did listen to his excellent sermon. He talked about the agenda of one blind you to what God is actually doing. Foolish disciples, slow of heart, but still Jesus comes to them in love. I love the way that in the Gospels, Jesus is called a friend of sinners. His enemies mean it as an insult. Ah, friend of sinners. He hangs out with all the wrong people, eats with them. Now, I need Jesus to be a friend of sinners because I am a sinner. I need the living word of God spoken to me gently by someone I can relate to in the midst of my ordinary, unremarkable, and sometimes boring life. I love the whole picture of Jesus walking with these disciples. Uh, the image of walking with God has a rich biblical heritage. Um, a, it's an image of fellowship, of intimacy and purpose. The glorious example is Genesis chapter 3, of course. You may be familiar with it. With Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9 talks about when the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called, where are you? It's a tragic picture there of fellowship and intimacy with God lost by humanity. God walking, humanity hiding. And the first recorded question that God asked of humanity, where are you? God is not asking for information. It's not as if he doesn't know where they are. It's not some weird game of hide and seek. No, God is offering an invitation back into his presence. And it's not foolish to see here in the Emmaus Road that picture of God walking with his people restored. After the, after the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus, friend of sinners, God himself is now walking with humanity in the cool of the evening. Well, as the story unfolds, we see that as well as the word coming alongside us in Jesus, we need the word of explanation. 
verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Verse 32. It's a reminder, Jesus here, the one who taught as one with authority, not like the scribes. No, he has this authority that resides now in his word that our hearts burn. All Bible study, all preaching is nearly all a ministry of hearing. It's not so much about the preacher or the leader. It's about the word that is heard in us by the Spirit. So Jesus explains what is happening. He tells them what's going on. He does it from the Scriptures. I mean, Jesus, here is someone who has done what no one has ever done before. He died. He's not just resuscitated, brought back to life like Lazarus or the the widow's son. No, he is resurrected. He is now demonstrating in resurrection life what it's going to be like to be alive with a life of the kingdom that shall never end. He must have amazing, exciting things to tell us. And he tells us to read our Bibles. Jesus says to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oh, a bit disappointing really there. I mean, Jesus, is that the best you can do? Tell us to read our Bibles? I mean, we're talking Old Testament here. The New Testament hasn't even been written. And you want us to read the Old Testament? All that stuff about bodily fluids and uncleanness and battles and people being killed? First sight doesn't seem terribly relevant. But Jesus says, no, it's about me. Read it. Learn. It's enough for you. Did you notice that tone of rebuke? In all the resurrection stories in Luke's gospel, there is this sense of a rebuke of being slow to to hear the, the three times it's talked about in all that appearances, that Jesus is frustrated with them because they are slow of heart to believe. Why is he frustrated? It must be because they have enough in order to have faith. They don't know everything, but they know enough. They have the scriptures, and they have the eyewitness testimony of the women at the tomb that morning. And Jesus is saying, you are foolish and slow of heart to believe because you have enough to believe in me. And those disciples are just like me and you. I wonder how many of us accept that we have enough. Not everything about God and Jesus and the Trinity. Oh, don't go there. Um, You know, not everything. We're not answering all our questions, but we have enough to live a life of faith. We have eyewitness testimony passed on to us through the Scriptures, faithfully recorded in our New Testament, as we call it. We have the Scriptures could sound a bit boring, a bit unremarkable, until you hear the great stories as our friend from the wonderful Gideon shared earlier. Remarkable. Got the scriptures. A bit simplistic? Maybe. And God can, of course, give extraordinary revelation to whosoever he wants, whenever he wants. And some people give remarkable testimony to that, and we thank God for them. 
But remarkable testimonies are by their nature remarkable, unusual. The heart of faith is to be found in the Spirit bringing to life the word of the Scriptures. That's how it works nearly all of the time. The Scriptures explain what God is doing. Not just that God has done something, but what it means. Uh, As I say, I love that discussion between the disciples and Jesus. He asked them, what are you discussing? Together as you walk along, they stood still. Their faces downcast. One of them said, uh, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, stupid? No, he didn't say that. He said, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's a great question. What things? Just, I love it. Oh, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Duh. So clearly, this idiot is a visitor to Jerusalem because everybody in Jerusalem knows something has happened. So he must be a visitor. They assumed that if he was a local, he'd have to know that the real story of the day is about Jesus. Everybody knows something's going on, but what? It takes the witness of the word in Scripture to explain what is going on in their city and their world. There's an old saying, and it's attributed to St. Francis, but he never said it. And it's said that he said, preach the gospel at all times and use words if you have to. It's only partly true. Yes, the gospel must be embodied, as I'm going to say in a few moments in my sermon, but however well our good works speak, for the love of God, we always need words. Actions speak louder than words, but words speak clearer than actions. We always need the word to interpret what is going on. Tell us what's going on. Jesus on the Emmaus Road just doesn't go kind of, hey, look at me. No, he says, read the scriptures. So first we need the word to come alongside us in the ordinary business of life. I'm not surprised that, that, that certainly John, John's gospel's great word for the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, not the parakeet, the paraclete. Literally, one called alongside to help. We need the word to come alongside us. We need the word of explanation to make clear what's going on. As we come to the scriptures, God makes himself known to us. And and lastly, we do need the word embodied. We need the word embodied. It's not an accident that Jesus is made known. The revelation is given to these disciples. Their eyes are opened in the breaking of the bread. It comes at a meal. Isn't that great for Hong Kong? That's just like the perfect Hong Kong thing in a meal. Because everybody here knows that, you know, a meal is where stuff happens in Hong Kong. Why don't we put that first slide up just to set the tone? My long-suffering operator. There you go, the son of man. His whole style was he came eating and drinking. It's what Jesus does. He's revealed at the breaking of the bread. Some people think that Jesus had some particular way of of breaking the bread at a normal Jewish meal as the head of the table would do so, something unique to him. So they said, oh, it's Jesus. Maybe. But for me, the key point is that God chooses to speak to us in community. Nobody needs reminding that eating together is at the heart of community here in in Hong Kong. Uh, I think I've got another slide that that quotes the next one, Alan uh, Wolfert. He talks about food is symbolic of love. 
when words are inadequate. There's that sense. You embody it. It's in, it's in community. Jesus known at the break of the bread at the meal table sharing food. Jesus is known in community. And so many of us go wrong at this point. We have such a highly individualistic view of faith. Um, faith is, is personal, yes. Individual, no. Every Christian needs to find a place to belong, to talk, to work out questions, to live and to grow. You know, God teaches us to love, not normally by putting us among lovely people, but by people he expects us to love, and so on. Every Christian needs this. Because the, the Christian faith is not a puzzle to be solved or a question to be answered. It is a life to be lived by faith in community. The great Bible teacher, John Stott, subtitles his wonderful commentary on Ephesians, which is all about Christian community. He titles it, God's New Society. He writes about the church and its role in sharing the life of the risen Jesus. And he writes this. God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, by the wholesome standards of righteousness in place of corruption and wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, by the unremitting conflict with evil in place of a flabby compromise with it. Isn't that great? The church as a new community centered around Jesus and demonstrating and offering a better way to live. Now, sadly, I have to acknowledge that there are churches riddled with sin and hypocrisy that make a mockery of this grand vision. They dishonor Christ, they contradict the nature of the church, and deprive Christian witness of integrity, and we should mourn and weep for such things. Nothing is more important, both for the church and the world, that the church be the church, God's new society. Of course, even the best churches and the best Christians can drive us crazy. It is not easy to share faith in community. The old saying that Christians are not perfect, just forgiven, is true. I've heard it put this way. The unlovely ones in the community bring out the worst in me, the whiners get on my nerves. The gossips and the arrogant, the immature and the silly conspire to drain my resolve. But the answer is to remember that the branch can do nothing apart from the vine and that Jesus himself loved his friends, his unlovely, whining, gossipy, arrogant, immature and silly friends enough to die for them. I agree with uh, Pastor Bill Hybels from uh, Willow Creek in uh, Chicago. Uh, and every opportunity he gets, he slips into all the things he says, the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And it's true. As we embody the life of Christ and his word among us. Uh, where I come from, in the northeast of England, uh, in the winter it is known as a very cold and dark place. In the summer it's just known as a cold place, but that's another story. Uh, it's cold and dark. It's like dark, pitch dark by, what, about 3 p.m., about 3 o'clock in the afternoon? And it's cold, and you're trudging along. You walk the streets. But people often will have their lights on at that stage. If you haven't drawn their curtains, you kind of go past, and you look in, and you see people living life. It's a lovely picture of the church's mission, that people living in a cold and dark world, being invited into somewhere where there is light, there is warmth, and there is love. As we embody the living word, so others can see his light 
and feel his love. Let me pray for us for a moment. Uh, Thank you, Father, for giving us, through the beloved Dr. Luke, that picture of the Emmaus Road. Thank you that it's about you coming alongside, about explaining, about things being embodied in in mealtime fellowship and community. Father, we pray that day by day as we turn to the written word of Scripture, by your Spirit you will enliven our hearts and minds. May we be swift to believe and full of faith to know Jesus as God's living word in our midst. In his name we pray. Amen.